Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about children, spirituality, and consciousness. I am your host, Marla Hughes. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they are the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling with unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. Each week, I will be interviewing authors, philosophers, spiritual teachers, doctors, and many more about the wisdom children bring into this world and how we can transform our lives with this knowledge. Today, I am so excited to have on my show, Dr. Tobin Hart. Dr. Hart is a father, professor, psychologist, author, and consultant. He serves as a professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia in a very unique, interesting psychology department where they even have subjects and classes talking about love. He is the co-founder and president of the Child Spirit Institute, a nonprofit educational and research hub exploring and nurturing the spirituality of children and adults. His work integrates spirituality, psychology, and education. His latest books include The Four Virtues and The Integrative Mind. Today, we're going to be talking about his beautiful book, The Secret Spiritual World of Children. Hello, Dr. Hart. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hello, Marlo. My pleasure. So you're in West Georgia, Carlton, I think, right? Carrollton, that's right. Car- Carrollton, Carrollton. <laughs> well, I, I visited you once, and I loved that little town. I can't wait, can't wait to come back and visit. And I, I'm jealous because you get all the leaves changing there. And I'm in Southern California, so we don't get that. So <laughs> I think of that. So let's just jump right in. How was it that your interest was sparked in the area of children and spirituality? Well, I'd always been interested in spirituality, and I always loved children, too. At one point, I thought I'd be a, an elementary school guidance counselor, and that, mm-hmm. that didn't quite go the way that I thought it would go. I didn't, didn't pursue that too far. But one day, my then six-year-old daughter was heading to bed, and this was a girl who always wanted to stay up a little bit later. And so she would have various ploys to say, Dad, what about this? What about that? Well, this night, she noticed a book under my arm, and the book had a picture of a child on it. And she said, Dad, what are you reading a children's book for? And I said, well, it's not a book for children. It's a book about children. She said, you mean like seeing angels? And I said, well, sure, it could be about things like that. This was a developmental psychology book. I probably was preparing for a class. And this was the angels were the last thing that were in any developmental psychology book. But I said, I again took the bait and said, sure, that's uh, it could be about that. She said, I see my angels. And I said, you did or you do. And she said, yeah, she had mentioned this a couple times previously in the last six months or so. And I never took the bait then, but I did this night. And as a good researcher, I said, well, do you see her now? And she said, just a minute. And she proceeded to lie back on her big bed, uh, this little little brunette-haired girl. <laughs> and she started to take in these deep 
and stood spine from side to side as if getting it in the right spot. Mind you, she hadn't seen anybody do yoga that I knew of, and we certainly didn't talk about angels in our household. I had no idea what she was doing. Clearly, she had an idea exactly of what she was doing. It was maybe three or four minutes later, and, and then she said, you know, surrounded by this forest of stuffed animals, beanie babies at the time, she said, I see her now. Her eyes were still closed. She spoke in this deep, or this, uh, this slow, calm voice. And I said, well, what does she look like? She says, well, she's wearing a blue dress, and it looks like she's got glowy lipstick and makeup on, but she doesn't. It's just her. Again, I thought, well, this is great. This is a child's imagination, and again, a ploy to get to stay up a little bit later at night. And then I said, well, what's your, uh, uh, can I talk to your angel? And she's paused for a moment. Again, eyes still closed, lying on the bed. And she said, my angel knows your angel. They're old friends. And in that moment, my heart started to swell a little bit. And I had tears come to my eyes. And I didn't know what was going on, really. And, you know, the body registers things before the mind kicks in and understands what's going on. So you might have a a shock of fear, or in this case, a an opening of the heart, and I knew something special was going on. For the next 15 minutes or so, Haley and her angel and I had this conversation, and she spoke with a kind of profundity that I don't hear from the wisest adults I know, much less from a six-year-old. <laughs> At one point, I asked her what her angel did for her, and she said, it helps me see better. Clearer? I said, yes, and it lets me know I'm loved. She also, at one point, started to give me advice about something I was working on. And, and really, this was not anything I had mentioned to anybody. And I really hadn't acknowledged it to myself. And yet, she spoke with this uh, remarkable kind of wisdom. And it wasn't the kind of wisdom that was complex. Uh, wisdom tends to cut through the cloud of complexity. Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, said that wisdom involves no may. He said it involves seeing from a greater height or seeing into the heart of something. And that was just the kind of language, or rather just the kind of insight that she had about what was going on for me. In any event, we went on for another 10 minutes or whatever, uh, up to 10 or 15 minutes. And she finally started to get a little antsy. I noticed uh, she was wiggling a little bit. Her eyes were still closed. At this point, I didn't want her to go to bed, but it was time. And I asked her one more, one final question. And I said, is there anything else your angel wants to tell me? And she paused again as if checking out with her. And she said, children talk to their angels. And at this point, I gave her a bigger hug and kiss than I had before and left the room and wrote down as verbatim as I could what this conversation was. And this was really my launch into trying to understand or trying to to even open up the question about whether children have a spiritual life or not. Wow. Wow. So I know you had mentioned things. You just started meeting some people, the woman from Asheville and things just kind of started happening. So how did this, how did this beginning, how then did it kind of start to manifest? Well, 
as I left the room and wrote this down, I really was sort of dumbfounded. I mean, it just had this quality to it that was kind of self-authenticating. You know, it just felt very real to me. And again, her depictions of, you know, it provided her basically comfort and counsel were really, really profound. I mentioned it to my wife at one point, and and she got very excited about it. And and sometime later, she revealed her own experience at five years old. And the day later, somebody emailed or rather called and mentioned uh, an 11-year-old girl that they found on the internet. And it happened to be in Asheville, North Carolina. And we were going to go visit Asheville. It's a pretty cool town. We understood and hadn't been in the South for very long. So we thought we'd take the trip that, that weekend. Well, it turned out that this girl had her own spiritual life at 11. And she and her mom were were very active and interested in this. And so out of this serendipity, again, this person just called us out of the blue and mentioned this. We visited her. She, she and they became fast friends and we've stayed in touch with them over these many years. And, uh, you know, one of the things that happened that made me feel like this really wasn't my project. I was just to be of service to it was somebody would say something randomly in a plane and said, you know, I don't know why I need to tell you this, but I want to tell you about this thing that happened to this child or that happened to me as a child. And and so these things started to, to pop out of the pavement, sort of. And we then decided that this needed a little more rigorous research agenda. And we spent yes. several years just tracking this down, trying to collect stories and do research on this. Wow. And then what did you do with that research? Is that where your book came from? Yeah. Essentially, what we did was, my wife and I particularly, we were involved in forming a nonprofit called the Child Spirit Institute. And out of that, we formed the North American Conference on Children's Spirituality that we've hosted several times. We've done a lot of projects and programs for teachers and parents and kids as well. And one of the things that seemed important about that was when I met this 11-year-old, I said, look, I don't really know why I'm here. We, you know, we're visiting Asheville for the weekend, and, and but I don't know why I'm really interviewing you. I don't know why we're, we're having this conversation. She paused for a minute, much like my own daughter did, and sort of tuned inside for a moment. And then she said, you're to write a book about this for your children and for these children. And so that was wow. my, those were my marching orders, you know? And so yes. again, I, you know, I'm, I'm a good skeptic and a good scientist. And yes. I said, well, that's, that's nice. Maybe that's cute, but sure enough, that's what needed to happen. Wow. That's beautiful. That That's an, and that was just serendipitous that she happened to call you and you happened to be going to Asheville. Yes, or as yeah. Jung would say, synchronous, right? That these yes. things happen. Synchronicity, yes. Yes. <laughs> That's the word. That's the correct word. Yeah. 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 Well, I love your quote about it is childhood moments of wonder are not merely passing reveries. They shape the way a child sees and understands the world, and they often form a core of his or her spiritual identity, morality, and mission in life. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so I think, you know, somebody has a, a moment of awe or maybe of wonder or of knowing or something scary. And 
you know, we often think, well, that's a nice sort of one-off thing. But what this does, I think, is really indicate more of a way of being in the world and often reflects a kind of spiritual intelligence. And so, and especially children, I think, have sometimes have different spiritual styles. So, for example, one person may have a, a deeply empathic way of resonating with another person, being able to feel into them, you know, that meaning of empathy. And this can be tremendously profound and really serves as a kind of superpower, even. It can be overwhelming, but that people have this as a kind of, say, a spiritual intelligence or a spiritual style. Another child might be particularly great at asking the big questions that all of philosophy and all of religion have started based on. The questions like, what are we here for? What's life about? How do I know that's true? These are the fundamental questions of, of, as I say, religion and philosophy. And some children at four and at five ask these. I remember one child was dead actually going into the grocery store and they go in looking for some milk, you know, and they, they open the, the, the electric doors open before them. And the child is holding his dad's hand. He's five years old and he looks up and he says, dad, what are we here for? And he, dad, looks down a little bit annoyed and he says, well, you know, we're, we've come for milk and something for dinner. Mom sent us. And he said, no, what are we here for? And dad looks down <laughs> and, in a bit of a panic and he says, you mean alive? He said, yes, of course. You know, basically that's what I'm asking. And fortunately the dad, uh, you know, winding up an answer or trying to, and fortunately had the good parent deflection of saying, uh, well, what do you think we're here for? And the five-year-old says, I'm not sure yet. I'm still working on it. So, and so oh, you know, whether it's it. uh, deep empathy or uh, Haley's sense of being able to access wisdom or whether it's these deep, profound questions, these are all different, what I would call spiritual styles. And that's why they form a kind of, uh, you know, a way of being in the world, a way of knowing or a way of relating to things. And how has that changed, just listening to these children and hearing these stories, how has that changed the way you walk in this world? Yeah, well, that's a nice question. Uh, I think twofold. One is I have a whole other level of respect, I think, for children. You know, uh, Cahil Gibran, the great Lebanese poet, he says, uh, children come through us, not from us. Often we feel like the children are ours in some ways. And, and this helps me recognize even more that children are their own beings. They're already these spiritual beings. And while they're naive in the ways of the world and they really require and benefit from our guidance and our saying no sometimes and that kind of thing, they still are big souls already. And so that's one thing. The other thing is it, it helped me really reconnect with my own childhood ways of knowing you know you learn to be uh, more intellectual and more rational and certainly as a professor you know that's the currency of the realm but part of what this does is help me really remember into those yes. early ways of being that are much more heart filled and a much more intimate way of knowing the world and you know there are other people throughout history who've recognized this great uh, german philosopher Goethe, you know, he was somebody that talked about an intimate empiricism, you know, a more intimate way of knowing the world. 
yet from the kind of late enlightenment on, we've really sort of become much more separated from the world. So anyway, we're beginning to recognize through things like quantum mechanics and so forth that the world looks like it's much more interconnected than we had assumed. And that's part of what this has helped me to do as well. Right, right. And you talk a bit about how we learn together. And can you brush on that subject? Sure. So so one of the things that, that this has done, I think, is made me wonder, you know, who's teaching whom? You know, we teach children <laughs> to brush their teeth and they teach us about patience, right? And we teach children to tie their shoes and they teach us about sacrifice. And we teach children to sit up straight and they teach us about this unfathomable level of love that we hardly knew was there. And so this thing called parenting or teaching or befriending a child, whatever role we take up, is a kind of reciprocal education and in a lot of ways a kind of reciprocal a revelation, you know, there's this mutuality in our learning and it becomes this lifelong thing. You know, my kids are kind of grown now, but but it's still this this great continuing mutuality. You know, it's not about me doing to them. It's about us sort of finding this out together. And young parents yeah. particularly know this, but yes. And you talked a little bit about contemplative practice. And can you explain what that is and why you think that's important for, for all of us, for children and adults? Yeah, so, of course, these days, more than a third of Americans have tried meditation or yoga, it looks like, and the numbers are increasing. I just was reading something that it looks like the percentage of people who are on antidepressants has now been surpassed by the people who are on anti-anxiety medication. At least those numbers are rivaling each other. And so there's this incredible hyperdrive that's going on in the society these days. And, and so we see this at every level, I think. And, and so there's lots of busyness, lots of anxiety, lots of doubt, lots of existential angst, I think. And so one of the things that we that I think is that the, the, the greater the speed and the greater the integration of technology, whether it's social media or these phones that are, you know, essentially we become hybrids, we become technological hybrids. These things are attached to us and pretty soon they will be implanted in us, you know, in one form or another. And so the greater the external technology, I think the greater there is need for an internal technology of consciousness. And so rather than being caught up and simply responding or rather reacting to whatever comes at us, the new email, the, the tweet, whatever it is, how do we actually see what is of value in this sea of information? You know, how do we move from this kind of glazing the surface of information, these bits and bytes that are reduced down to zeros and ones, essentially, to see what really is meaningful? And in order to do that, I think, you know, in this age of algorithms and anxiety, you know, we have to sort of find another way of knowing and being able to be present, to be able to feel what our body is doing and what our body knows, 
to be able to be still. Uh, uh, T.S. Eliot uh, said uh, the this, this still point in the turning world. You know, we have to find the still point, not just for our mental balance or our mental hygiene, but actually as a way of inquiring into the world, as a way of meeting the world in some way. Because if we can't resonate with the world, if we don't know what's going on with us, we can't know what's going on with the other, with someone else. So anyway, this is so important these days, I think. And there's not one way to do it. You know, mindfulness isn't for everybody, for example. And we don't even know what mindfulness is in, in some ways or def- definition. But there's something about being present. There's something about being still. There's something about uh, finding beauty that is, uh, are, these are all ways of uh, leaning into the contemplative mind, opening up this mm-hmm. contemplative space, uh, making ourselves more spacious for whatever there is uh, before us. And, and isn't that how the very, very young live their lives Every, every moment, you know, I think of looking at a flower or a raindrop or, or something like that. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, you know, this capacity for absorption that kids have and also this capacity for, for wonder and awe, you know, just to be able to be sort of, wow, let me fall down the rabbit hole of this thing. It's this, this, yeah. this more intimate way of knowing that really brings knowing and being together exactly what you know scientific method has not done is pulled those things apart not that science is bad but that it's incomplete it's an incomplete way of knowing mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you also say in your book and we've touched on this a little bit but we teach mostly who we are so you could talk about that a little bit yeah you know i think you know as as an ally or a parent or a teacher or uh, some other kind of friend that, you know, we can say a lot of things, we can offer a lot of ideas, but but mainly we're modeled. You know, the primary way that a child learns is modeling. And it's also, the, in many ways, the the fastest way to learn. You sort of mimic what's going on. Even, a, even an infant will open a mouth or stick out a tongue when we're doing that. And so, again, we we teach mostly who we are. And so the quality of our presence, the honesty of that is really true. For example, you know, sometimes parents and others, other friends of children will try to shield children from their own feelings, for example. Now, certainly yes. it's appropriate sometimes to not share everything, particularly things that aren't age appropriate with a child. But on the one hand, if we're saying one thing, but really feeling another, a child's internal radar will become really confused, and they won't be able to trust that kind of intuition, that bodily knowing. And so it's really important for us to be congruent, you know, to be who we are with them and to be honest about that. So anyway, so those are some of the ways that that's significant. Yeah, yeah. The feeling thing, it's interesting because when I jumped into the, to the pool, I'll say, of, of spirituality in this world. I just remember feelings, you just re- can hear someone saying, well, you shouldn't feel that way. And now I realize really feelings should be our touchstone, you know, and if it can serve as an inner guidance, a strength of inner guidance for children, could help them navigate, navigate as they get 
as they get a little bit older. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, again, I think there maybe there are two ways that I think about, you know, our heart, you know, and one of them is to feel our feelings. And the other is to feel, let's say, say it this way, to feel our heart. That would be feeling our feelings and be really aware of those things and, and try to sort them out. And sometimes they're just clunky and confusing and other times they're just open and compassionate and loving. So that's feeling our heart. But the other, other thing to do is to feel with our heart. And that's a way of meeting the other, meeting the world with this kind of, let's say, curiosity and compassion and open-heartedness. So when we lead with that, instead of judgment or criticism or fear, then what we see is radically different. So it's not only feeling into our heart, but it's feeling with our heart. So Right. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. And you talk a little bit about in your book about the Tibetan book of living and dying. And I know you're interested, as I am, in some of the ancient civilizations and indigenous rituals that they have. Can you just talk about that a bit? Yeah, so it's interesting to look at indigenous society sometimes. And one of the things I'm really interested in is in general, with children particularly, but uh, with all of us, is how we know. And one of the things that indigenous societies were particularly interesting to me about (laughs) was ways of knowing that seemed to really transcend what we would call knower and the known, or the subject and the object, or the observer and what is observed. And so in so many traditions, they talk about other ways of knowing, for example, in Aboriginal culture in Australia, for example, they talk about dream time. And dream time, literally, when they're dreaming, is more real than the world that we're seeing in front of us. In Hindu tradition, they talk about Maya. And Maya is basically means that what we see in front of us is illusion in relation to the more fundamental reality that's under this. And so, anyway, part of what those cultures often do is they reflect a kind of, again, another intimacy with, with the world. And this lack of sort of segregating and separating the object of knowing from the individual who's doing the knowing. And so it's, it's, uh, there, there's some other things we could say about ancient cultures or old cultures, but I was just looking at Neoplatonist. So this is like second century after Christ. And how profound people like uh, Plotinus and some others were, and how much they're saying, look, there's nothing you have to believe in. It's not about belief. It's about your direct knowing. It's about direct experience. Even somebody like Karen Armstrong, who's a former nun who's written a lot about spirituality, she says, look, the original meaning of the word to believe wasn't about having an idea about something. It was to love. It was to live in a loving way. And she said that's that action, you know, that way of being and knowing in the world, that's how you figure out what course to follow. Not about some predetermined sort of route. So it's interesting to see some of those things uh, as yeah. well. So. Um, speaking of rituals, I can't let you get away without talking about the importance of rituals for children and the story of Irene. 
<laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, one of the things we know, especially with little kids is predictability is really helpful. Novelty is really great too, but, but, you know, there's some things that we rely on. It's like, ah, this is bedtime every night, or we're going to have dinner together, or this is what we do as a family when we sit down and hold hands and all this. Those ki- kinds of things are sometimes the glue. There's little things, right? But they're kind of the glue that helps us feel really safe, you know, and lets us know that this is home base. So one day my friend was putting his daughter to bed for yet the millionth time. And and this night he was a little preoccupied and he had always sung to her when it was time to bed. It was the sort of the, the clock on the wall. And he always sang an old song, Good Night, Irene to her to tell her that it was bedtime. This night, again, he was preoccupied. He'd had a a full and distracting day and he forgot to sing it to her. And so she was in bed, you know, getting under the covers and he was tucking her in. And he said, dad, what's wrong? He said, well, nothing. What What do you mean? He said, you didn't sing goodnight onion ring to me tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Love that story. (laughs) Very sweet. Well, I have a couple of quotes that I have to I have to read because they're just so profound. One, when we recognize a child as a complete spiritual being rather than merely our growing offspring, a powerful shift occurs. What arises is respect and reverence for the uniqueness of the soul in front of us, even though they might not have fully ripened as a human. Our children do not belong to us. They belong to their own soul and calling. And you referred to this a bit ago, but would you like to say anything about that beautiful quote? Well, I don't know if there's more we can say. <laughs> it pretty much but says one it. Of the, one of the things that's been really gratifying about, you know, having written this little book and, and putting it out there is a parent will sometimes uh, write or or um, say something and they'll say, you know, I, I'm very spiritual and I've always seen my children as very spiritual, but when I, after reading this, I began to see them a little differently. I began to notice some things or at least acknowledge some things that had always been there, but I just sort of passed over and I really am taking them up, the child up at a whole nother level of sort of depth and appreciation. And for me, you know, that, that's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. Beautiful. And one other quote and we'll, we'll wrap it up with, with this and your words of wisdom at the end. I cannot express the depth of my amazement of and gratitude for the grace children give without trying. The secret spiritual world of children reminds us to listen for inner wisdom, find wonder in the day, see through the eye of the heart, live the big questions, and peer into the invisible. When we open to the spiritual world through the presence of a child, we honor their spirit and simultaneously renew our own. <laughs> that is just so, I've read this a million times. <laughs> I, just, I, I get teary-eyed every time I read it. So have, um, would you like to share anything that I, that I haven't asked? No, you've asked great questions. Again, one of the things that, I, that stands out to me is that the you know the motor behind evolution is diversity and while there's themes for example that i found in this it's 
the particularity of the, the each of us, right, and each child, and each mm-hmm. circumstance, and each each unique moment. I think that's so special, and so you know, in our attempts to corral children into certain categories and get them to do certain things. And some of that we just have to do for, to help them yeah. really live in the world. But, but boy, to really, to keep fresh those eyes towards honoring their, their particularity, you know, their uniqueness, I think is really pretty important, especially these days when there's so much yeah. pressure to comply and to be like everybody else. And so anyway, so, so that's, that's yeah. a word. Well, thank you so much. And if people would like to find you, where where should they go? What are your social media? Well, I'm not really on social media. <laughs> so, but, but there's a website for Child Spirit Institute, childspirit.org and childspirit.net. And they're my university, the University of West Georgia. There's a website there and uh, a website for this book, which is really sort of the book, The Four Virtues. It's called thefourvirtues.org, I think it is, or .com rather. And that's sort of the spiritual child grows up. So that's about, you know, how we translate some of these ideas to adulthood and uh, adolescence. Wow. Well, I'd love for you to come back on the show and we could talk a little bit about that too. Well, thank you so much for today. It's, it's wonderful to see you again. And all of this information for our listeners will also be in our show notes. And thank you, Tobin. It was a wonderful interview. My pleasure, Marla. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.